0: Grinmark Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming.
1: Well, I just want to welcome everyone again for another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid COVID-19 Coverage. And today we're going to be talking to some of the leaders in our field. And, you know, I feel incredibly lucky to be in ophthalmology. Um, I'm kind of reminded of that during this shutdown and quarantine. Uh, When we're not around our friends in ophthalmology, we recognize how much we miss them. Uh, I also recognize uh, throughout this time how lucky I've been to uh, be blessed by good leaders in our field. And today we're going to be talking to four uh, who are just second to none. So, Blake, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guests today?
2: Yeah, sure, Gary. Whenever we're in times of crisis, we do two things: we we look back at our core values that guide us, and we also look to our leaders. Um, And normally, I'd be introducing. Uh, our panelists, but these panelists need no introduction. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Rowan from California, Dr. Maloney from California. We have uh, Stephen Slade from, from Houston and uh, Chuck Williamson from here in Baton Rouge. Um, so um, really uh, a good mix of surgeons who are in different styles of practice, whether it be a more boutique refractive practice or a large multi-center practice or even a practice that's, that's over multiple states. So we thought that, you know, this would be a a fantastic panel to kind of come together to answer some questions about this COVID situation, both in terms of what we're doing now um, and what we plan to do here in the near future. So I'll start off with uh, Stephen Slade. and, And Dr. Slade, I mean, I think it'd be good for 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 you to walk us through sort of what y'all's response has been um, in your practice. Everyone a couple weeks ago had to make some decisions about what to do with employees and how to see patients and what types of patients to see. I'd like to kind of go around the room and talk a little bit about what y'all's response was.
3: Sure, we um, and um, thanks Blake. We started really as quickly as we could We have a committee of the five doctors that are in the practice and the administrator. And we decided early on that the best thing we could do was communication. It's sort of the only thing we can do is sort of what we're doing today. We set up a series of calls between the uh, the doctors and the administrator of that committee. We have calls with all the staff. We have um, sort of any way that we can communicate with them. As far as uh, your specific questions, we kept everybody on. We're very happy with our staff. We kept them on until it became obvious that it was better for them, some of them, if we furloughed them. Um, Here, in Texas at least, we're under a mandatory state board order that we cannot operate. ASCs are closed. Uh, You will literally... (laughs) From the governor it came down that you will be put in prison for six months if you are if you operate or if you know somebody who is operating they will put you and him in prison or her so it, it's really kind of strict and then of course there's a lockdown order so we're trying we're really concentrating on communicating with our patients talking to them and communicating with our staff and helping them individually to whether they file for unemployment, what they're doing, or this or that. Uh, the last point is we are open one day a week at current at present, but we are starting to talk about our comeback plan. But the one day a week is for patients that are um, time sensitive, cross-linking, glaucoma, light adjustments, unexplained vision loss that sort of thing
2: and for the staff that you have kept on have you have you guys um sort of repurposed or retrained or cross-trained them to do different things Stephen for instance like you know we have we're trying to launch our telemedicine uh, uh platform and we've done a good job but we've had some refractive counselors help us out as you know basically the phone team now
3: yeah well that's that's exactly what works and that was a logical step for us too even though we haven't discussed it, but it it is there's so much of what you can do in refractive counseling over the phone and really save any way that we can, and this is more of our comeback plan, but any way that we can shave minutes off of their first visit back to us. In other words, we're going to space them out over the clinic, separate them. We're going to space them out over time. Uh, We're going to Try to talk to them as much as possible. Cataracts too. Cataract evals. Any way that we can have them in the office a minimum amount of time, um, that's a good tactic.
2: And what about what about you, Sherry? What, what's going on in California? How is it different?
4: It's it's pretty similar. I think we're all shut down throughout the entire country and we I, I got my last patients and when i heard what was happening i called up everybody and i said please come in i need to get their second eye the eyes done and we only had, i had a, we have a few left but most of them you can't leave somebody -7 in one eye and you know plano in the other and one a couple of patients were going crazy with it so so for surgery we got a lot of that finished and once we realized that we were going to have to shut down we started getting trained on doxy.me so we could call patients and start trying to get do exactly what Steve said because we knew that we'd have to social distance when we slowly re-entered back into the practice. And if we could get all the information, all the history, all the medical information, get everything inputted, have the conversation with the patient first so that we don't have to have that whole consulting conversation and explaining what we're going to do they'll they'll have met us or the counselor and we can come in and do exactly what we need to do in the office do the testing and we don't really have to have a conversation already they sort of will understand where they're going with it and i see it everything changing because we've done this and we're really going to have to go to telemedicine in some way I, i know we're going to be talking about that type of thing because this, is, this isn't over when we re enter. This is going to continue for a while. We have to get back up and running. We have to be able to accommodate a large number of patients for less doctors. And so I, I see that this is like the, unfortunately, the, the mother of invention is a necessity. And we're going to have to harness our electronic medical record power and our digital platforms instead of letting it encumber us and that's what has happened in the past and I think everybody's going to be you know I think companies will be coming in and trying to figure out how to create things for us to be able to use so we can continue these types of operations I don't think this is going to go away actually.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, this, is a, this is a very interesting time where we're sort of seeing some, some evolution and revolutionary change in ophthalmology. And I, I want to get to that at some point where we do kind of have that conversation. But before we do that, you know, I do want to remind all of our attendees, you know, we've got some of the best attendees. I mean, we, we've got so many of our friends attending. Um, and we actually have a first question here from Tom F. I'm going to guess that's Tom Frenzy. And and he wants to know, Steve, are you wearing pants? <laughs> that's, uh, that's the most the the, the highbrow question
3: coming in first. The you the want to know <clears throat> why would I dignify that with a response? <laughs> I think that's exactly what we would we would want. Of course not. Uh,
1: of course not. Of course <laughs> not. Uh, Robert, you know, I'd like to hear from you. You know, you've you've already heard Stephen and Sherry on what they're doing in their practice. Um, walk us through what you and Netta are doing um, in your practice. Anything that is a little different or the similarities from, from um, you know, what you've heard already?
5: Uh, so I have a two-person, two-partner practice, myself and Dr. Netta Chami, three optometrists who work with us, about uh, 28 staff. And so my practice is very similar to Steve's and hearing Steve talk was literally, it could have been exactly what I wanted to say. I guess then the only thing I'd add is, or not even add, emphasize the importance of communication during this time. Um, we uh, moved quickly to lay off our entire staff. We did it as soon as the shutdown order came in. I paid all my staff. I didn't pay them. I loaned them two weeks of paid time off. So they now have negative paid time off, which they'll earn back when they come back to work. We wanted to make sure they had money to live on while they were waiting for their unemployment insurance. And indeed, it took about two weeks for them to get that. Um, most of our staff lives paycheck to paycheck, and so it was really important for us to take care of them. We paid two months of health benefits, so none of them had to worry about getting sick. They used to worry about getting sick. They didn't have to worry about how they're gonna pay for it if they got sick. And we've been doing a twice-weekly Zoom call with the entire staff that's laid off to tell them what we're doing, what our plans are, how they're evolving. Um, We've applied for a PPP loan, which has not come through. Um, But when that comes through, we'll hire everybody back. And so we're giving them regular updates on this. I think this is really critical in a time of crisis because it's it's scary for us. None of us want to get sick. But as physicians, we know that this is a manageable crisis, right? We know that particularly we look at our younger staff, we know their risk of death if they get COVID-19 is well less than 1%. It's different for, for Steve and I, but it's for them, it's well less than 1%. So it's scary, but not that scary. They're non-physicians. All they see on the news is people dying in ICUs. There aren't stories in the news about all the people who have a mild illness and get better. And so it is terrifying for them. And so for us, it's been really critical to constantly communicate a message of cautious reassurance, of realism, of saying that this Crisis will pass. That it is manageable. That we can do contact tracing. That they can come back to the office. When we reopen and work safely, with N95 masks, with regular cleaning, with um, all the other precautions that we're all doing. And so, I'd say that's the single most important thing right now is communication.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and we've had a, a similar response. We're doing. We're trying to do Zoom calls with our staff. <laughs> You know, I think it's been great to have the furlough option where we can keep the people on their uh, health benefits while they can still get unemployment insurance and, and they're being made whole. So um, I've, been, I've been pleasantly surprised, I guess I'd say, with some of the um, aid packages and, and relief packages that have come out um, in sort of an unprecedented time like this. Um, our good friend John Doan has got a couple of questions uh, one, what does Sherry do with the bubble wrap, which I don't know what that even means. So I probably have stepped into something. And then the second, <laughs> oh, it's in the background there. And he um, wants to explain <laughs> the umlaut um, concept. And, and John, I'll just say, um, I'm just pre- pretending to be more German than I actually am. That's that's the whole concept there. Um <laughs> Chuck, you know, you guys, unfortunately, you know, in Louisiana have have had your your share of, um, I guess, you know, crises uh, with Katrina and other things. And uh, there's been some flooding that has affected your practice in the past. Um, what do you make of this situation we're in right now? And how does it compare? And how is it different from things you've had to go through in your practice in the past?
6: Well, I think yeah, we've because of where we are on the Gulf Coast, and and, and Stephen has this too, in Houston, uh, we've had hurricanes, of course, Katrina, Gustav. Gustav is actually worse for us. We had a flood in 2016 that basically uh, uh, completely flooded out uh, about uh, 50% of the area. Uh, A lot of patients went under, a lot of, uh, my brother was out of his house for a year. Uh, we had an office that went completely under that uh, had four feet of water in it. So we had to get all the, get that up and running. And a lot of these places weren't in floodplains, basically. It was a historic flood. So basically, people had no insurance. And it started rebuilding. It was all cash. Uh, we've been through, all of us here that have been through practicing for years have been in the, the economic crashes of 87 and 2008, of course. Uh, but this is different. This is a two-front war. This is a war, basically uh, a medical, a war in medicine, basically about lives, and it's also an economic war. It's a war about livelihoods, and initially, all these responses we're talking about, personal protection, a uh, social distancing, all of these things that we're doing, mask and the availability of that, has to do with uh, with lives. Uh, Uh, The livelihoods, though, is starting to loom as a bigger factor as time goes on. This can't continue. The unfortunate position we are in the United States uh, is that we really have no clear roadmap. As you know, people are just counting deaths and how many people are COVID positive. There's no real, uh, we don't have a uniform testing. Uh, We don't even have antibody tests that necessarily can be uh, dependent upon 100%. So you can't necessarily rely on them. So we're all gonna go back to practice at some point here very soon, knowing that we're gonna have COVID positive patients in our waiting rooms, that we're gonna talk to them and see them. It's not possible. We can't possibly avoid them all. Uh, So the key is, is gonna be uh, uh, what you're going to do with that knowledge to basically minimize exposure. First, to your staff and to your providers, if you want to stay in business, because everything can be up and running. And if somebody gets COVID positive, uh, uh, one of your providers, then you may lose an entire team. So we can talk about later what to do, but it's obvious that you're not going to have your entire (coughs) operating room and all the nurses operating immediately, because if there's an exposure in your operating room, you can't lose your entire nursing staff. You may have to go half staff, somebody in the morning, somebody in the afternoon as you return. So uh, if there's some exposure, then you can at least not have you know, wiped out an entire cadre of, of, of providers because that'll put you out of business as well. Uh, as far as the public is concerned, you can be as safe as possible, but nobody's gonna be safe in this. Everybody's going to lose. So the perception of safety has to be the ultimate part of what you do when you return. Your office has to seem and has to look like a place that people can come to and and have some degree of safety. Obviously, people are not gonna like to come to crowded spaces and they, they need to come to a place where things look prepared. Unfortunately, that's gonna impact your throughput and your efficiency, it's not gonna be the same. So, we'll have to talk about those later and be glad to talk about them. But you have two issues in ophthalmology. Exams are quick, surgeries are quick. So, basically, we have, you know, we have, uh, and and workups are long and and paperwork's long. So, we have buildup of uh, of waiting rooms and that's basically full of people. Well, we can't have that anymore. So, we're going to have to reduce wait time for people. And the second thing is all our exams are very close and personal, so we're going to have to reduce things like, uh, you know, you're going to have to use technology some, in some degree to do that, which is things like non midriatic cameras that can do uh, uh, full-fill fundus pictures in, face, in place of having somebody sit there for 45 minutes and dilate, and then getting right up close to them and looking at their retinas. So, so the reality of is that some of this is going to have to evolve over time, but uh, certainly you're going to have to take care of those two two plus, And telemedicine is one of them. Uh, that's one of the things we're going to do. And not in the way that we think. Telemedicine in that the insurance department will be contacting patients on telemedicine. Same doxy program. problem. They'll have waiting rooms full of people getting all the pre-certed insurance information so insurance certification isn't done at the time. The same thing will happen with techs. They will have all this information that needs to be collected at the time that usually got time in the office and that will be done also with telemedicine. Same platform, calling up patients and having lists of waiting rooms of patients that they're gonna see the next week uh, so that all that's done So uh, those are some of the things that we're thinking about, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, ours is a large practice, we have 150 providers, six locations, so, so it's been a quite a a job to put that all back together.
2: Stephen, you heard him mention, um, you know, floods, obviously, Houston had a little bit of a flood, uh, not too long ago. Um, Can you talk about other disasters? That that you know your practice has been through, uh, and, and maybe how this is different, and or what you learned uh, in sort of navigating those disasters.
3: Starting with the Spanish flu of 1918. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how do you weather that? <laughs> you
2: were a fellow. You
3: were a fellow then in New Orleans. Right? <laughs> Undertook. <tech. clears throat> uh, it's we have. Very similar to Chuck, we have been through hurricanes. Uh, We were actually out of our house here in Houston for about a year and a half during Harvey. But there was a, and I think Chuck alluded to this too, in those past disasters, hurricanes we've been through, uh, being out of our house, whatever, there was a much clearer endpoint. In other words, we knew that when the house, we knew it, completion date. It was just us. It didn't affect the practice. Uh, hurricanes will sort of wipe Houston out for a week. Uh, I mean, An inch of snow will shut down Houston for a week. But you learn that there is a distinct endpoint. My, um, a bit of my focus, some of my concern with this, there's no clear endpoint. Uh, you have, our leaders, some of our leaders saying, we'll go back to work now. And some of our leaders say uh, 2022. Uh, Chuck also alluded to the fear. And this is something that's on our minds. How does our practice have um, present as safe? In other words, when patients come in three months from now, this is going to be on their minds. They come in three months from now, Will our practice be reassuring to them? Um, it's it's just different. And we've been shut down, we've been through natural disasters, but the um, we've been through personal disasters I and mean, with the help of people we've gotten through all of those. But we had a clear endpoint, and with this we don't. And managing that uh, return is in ways going to be much more challenging and much more, um, difficult than the left side of the curve. So, you know, again, the, the two things I keep reminding myself of, uh, the first thing is communication. The second thing is flexibility. We really don't know what, uh, you know, two days from now, things could be completely different. They could have an antibody test, the virus could mutate, Uh, you know, somebody could get it that is our efforts to return. So we're just trying to be flexible and we're trying to figure out the best way to manage the um, return.
2: Robert, Robert, I feel like I've heard you talk at meetings about the financial crisis and, 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 you know, getting, getting back into cataract surgery and things like that. I wonder, you know, how many of us as physicians and surgeons are going to have to learn to do new things. Can can you talk a little bit about that and maybe other crises you've been through?
5: Yeah, I, I hardly feel like I have a fair voice here. I mean, Steve's been hit by a hurricane and Sherry's moved coast to coast and, uh, and uh, Chuck has uh, been through floods. For us, um, the biggest crisis we had was the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, I was doing almost pure lacy at the time. We were doing a little bit of cataracts, but not much. And so our volume dropped 40% between 2000, 2007 and 2009. Um, and so that was a huge hit to the practice. And I suspect, our vo- because we now do about half cataract, half LASIK, I suspect our volume will actually hold up much better this time because I think the cataract volume will come back relatively quickly. LASIK, probably not so quickly. Um, I think that the key takeaway for me from that crisis was never let a crisis go to waste. That was Ron Emanuel's famous quote. He was Obama's chief of staff. And during that crisis, we basically brought cataract surgery into the practice in a big way, and that's, as you can see, become a huge part of the practice, another source of revenue. The other thing we did that was very effective was we used the crisis to, to get rid of our low-performing employees. Uh, basically, we the people we laid off, we had to lay a bunch of people off, we chose to lay off the people who were the low performers preferentially, and that gave us a stronger staff. Um, we're not doing that this time because my employees now, I love them all. But but for many of us, we have low performers. This is a great opportunity to not bring them back without having to fire them. And uh, so that was really the takeaway I took away from that. And we're applying that now to this crisis. I'm sure we'll get back to that later. Sherry,
1: I want to hear from you as well. Um, Robert mentioned, you know, you moving and transitioning your career uh, moving coast to coast. Um, I'm sure you know, we've all been through various challenges. How does, how does this one compare to other things you've been through? Um, and, and just love to hear your thoughts on that.
4: It's, you know, <clears throat> each time you ha- go through something new like this, uh, you have to be adaptable. And I think adaptation, as Robert said, is truly the key I had to say I had the the 2008 financial crisis. I had my own LASIK center, and I was still doing cataracts at the time, so I was able to just and I and I actually was added cosmetics and aesthetics into my practice. So I decided to diversify early on and have a lot of components to my practice. So when LASIK hit women still wanted to look beautiful, so I was still doing plenty of aesthetic procedures. And and then coming out West, it was basically, everything was completely new. I was going to start all over with no background. You can see all my background, I have all my kids stuff in the back here, so I've, my grandchild comes to visit, so I was just looking at what's up there on my walls. <laughs> but anyway, um, so you, you know, I had to decide how I would reinvent myself. And I think again, as I said earlier, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And here we are again, and it's totally uncharted territory this time. This time we don't see an end. We have an invisible enemy. We don't know who has it. We don't know who's going to come into our space and, you know, and and, and where you go and who you can talk to. And, you know, just going outside, it's like you walk around people. Now you have this spacing that, you know, it, it's polite in a way, but it's also distancing. So we have to learn a different way of communication to patients and to our, our, to people in general. And, and this, you know i i think that this this is obviously the largest and most huge thing any of us have gone through because i don't remember ever being shut down i there was never a day i didn't go into work i didn't even call in sick i was always there so all of a sudden i can't go to work and it's really very different now it's it's a whole different concept and you have to think about what am i going to do next what how do i reinvent with we don't even have the platforms we need yet i know that rogers aldivar has icon vista he's implementing a lot of the telemedicine suites in offices in the united states i think that that is going to happen for a lot of us we're going to learn how to create a different workflow and so we have to reinvent ourselves yet again yeah
1: you know, speaking of different workflow, a question from Andy Corley uh, is is a great one, and it's I, it's sort of a question I have as well. Chuck, I, I'll, I'll pose this to you. Uh, does this crisis make you more open to bilateral simultaneous cataract procedures going forward? Um, you mentioned earlier that you felt like, you know, surgeries are quick and, and workups are slow. Do you think this would be a way to possibly speed up the throughput of, of patients if we could you know, potentially get rid of that uh, 50% cut we take on doing same day bilateral cataract surgery? Uh, yeah, I think
6: because uh, we do a considerable amount of, uh, of, of um, uh, specialty lenses and, uh, and Pinto. So actually with the reduced reimbursement from the federal government, the half that they're gonna take is less and less. <laughs> So uh, that becomes more significant in time savings for us um, by doing both, if we could do both eyes at the same time. So I, I really think everything you can do to improve efficiency and what you can do uh, with telemedicine before the patients get there, and instead of keeping them in the office to do things after the patients to get there, anything you can do to move it through, whether it's surgery or, or, or clinic, there's gonna be, uh, is going to be vital in the, in the coming months. And really I think it's going to stay with us for the next few years.
1: And and something you had said earlier, you know, we need to make it seem safe for our patients to come in. I think we could make an argument that most of our cataract patients are in the higher risk group and exposing them to, you know, less events, you know, at our centers, if they could have both their cataract surgeries done in the same day, that's reducing their risk, you know, overall risk by, I guess, 50% if you want, kind of want to slice it that way. Um, I'm wondering if that is an argument that could be made to uh, the folks at CMS. Any thoughts on that?
6: Well, I think basically it's going to be a lot more acceptable to the patients now. You know, before this, maybe the fear factor was do one and then do the other. But now every, every conversation we're going to have with somebody elderly or people that have pre-existing conditions is going to be for out of concern for your safety, we want you here as little time as possible, which they're going to pretty much agree with. And if the Grey Panthers start to organize and tell them that they actually want to go out there and spend less time at doctors' offices, then maybe some rule changes that get done and less regulation and more regulation that'll improve our efficiency.
2: Gary, I think. Um... Um, That kind of starts to get to our our third question. Um, um, And before we get to that, we're kind of at the halfway point. I just want to take a second for thanking our panelists and thanking all the participants. It's kind of like a who's who if you look through that list. And you guys uh, continue to ask questions down there at the Q&A section there. The chat function's off, but the Q&A is on if you want to ask one of our panelists a question. And we couldn't do any of this without the generous support uh, of our industry partners like Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, Santine. Kayla Pharmaceutical, uh, Diamatrix, and Avellino Labs. So thank uh, thank the industry partners so much for, for allowing us to do this. Um, Stephen, you know, you know, Dad was kind of mentioning some of the things that we need to do uh, to 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 stage our comeback. You know, we we want to have a resurrection. Uh, we want to come back in a, in a big way, but in a but in a measured, you know, calculated uh, way. What kind of advice do you have? um, for, you know, those of us as we're staging our comeback in terms of processes and protocols, how do we, how do we kind of, uh, how do we kind of come back as safely and as efficiently as possible?
3: Oh, um, really we're going to have to be guided by our patient's perception. There, you know, I'm sure there will be rules, there'll be guidelines, there will be, uh, you know, social distancing in your waiting room, uh, you know, keeping them in there as little as possible, talking to them beforehand, check, check, we we check everybody's temperature. We're requesting they don't bring anybody else in the office uh, with them. We're requesting them they bring a mask or face covering, but it, there's really no good science on much of this. So the key is what they feel, not what we figure out from what we, talk to other doctors about, or what, you know, the, some paper we read, but do your patients feel safe? So that would be the point uh, for me. I would just continually question them, talk to them, ask them, hey, how was your experience? I, I had to go for a routine medical appointment uh, two weeks ago, and it was, um, they made me feel very safe. It was an a hospital, the way it worked, just the layers of security, the hand washing, all that, or hand sanitizing. So communicate with your patients. Um, very importantly, the first ones through whatever new system you come up with, communicate with your patients. Did you make them feel safe? That's the whole key.
2: Yeah, perception's everything. I went to a Whole Foods uh, where 60% of the, the people wearing masks and one where 100% of the people were wearing masks. And I tell you what, I'm not going to go back to the 60% uh, during COVID, that's for sure. So perception really is everything. And Robert, I wonder how that may even change our marketing. You know, I wonder, instead of, instead of showing our, our shiny lasers and talking about our cool lenses, are we going to be talking about how safe we are? Come get the safest eye exam in, in California. Is that, have you guys thought about that? And What are the things are you thinking about in terms of your comeback?
5: Yeah, you know, we're not thinking in terms of of marketing that we're safer than anyone else. And in part, I think it's because I'm really tired of getting daily emails about what any vendor I has ever, ever worked with is doing about COVID-19. I now just hit delete. Um, But uh, we're thinking a lot about coming back. And this gets back to what I said earlier about never waste a crisis. We've spent this time uh, of being shut down, doing a lot of stuff to prepare us for going forward. We've, uh, we are just now implementing EHR. Uh, I've been using paper charts till now. We moved that up six months because we got dead time. We're going to get the whole staff trained while we're out, uh, out of patients. Uh, we're doing the same thing with a new practice management system. We're training at the same time. We wouldn't normally not have done that. Uh, I've developed a formal compliance plan for our practice. Uh, we've always you know, done a lot of stuff to be compliant, but never in a formal way. And so now there's a formal compliance plan if we ever get audited. We put together an OD certification course. Uh, We've been co-managing for decades, but we just kind of co-manage with people who want to co-manage with us. We have no idea if they have any idea what they're doing. And and I really think that's not viable going forward. So we put together a a course where we can certify the doctors we co-manage with and we can demonstrate that they're competent. Uh, We're planning for a satellite office. This is something we've been talking for a long time but just haven't had the time to do. We're, as people mentioned, learning telemedicine Uh, and everyone's doing that. It seems to me that in the future, we'll do LASIK one day post-ops by telemedicine rather than having people come in the office because really all that matters is, are they seeing well and is their eye white and quiet and they comfortable? So we can do that with a telemedicine consult and have them come in if there's any question. Uh, on a personal level, I've redone my will, not because I expect to die, but it just seems the right thing to do when we've got free time. And Thank so,
3: you, Robert, for including me, he, we
5: yes, exactly. Um, uh, stand up, Steve. Uh, are you wearing pants? <laughs> if I'm in your will, yes, I am. <laughs> you are there. I swear to God, I'm giving you all my fishing rods. Steve and I are fishing buddies. So anyway, so uh, it's a long answer to your question, but the bottom line is we're using this crisis to make us stronger than we've ever been. And so I'm very optimistic about the future. I'm not pessimistic at all.
1: Sherry, I want to ask you a question. And this is something I think you, you probably can uniquely answer for us. Um, I've had a number of friends sort of online and other places um, ask, you know, what is it going to be like when we go back And after not doing surgery for, you know, six, eight weeks, what is that going to be like? Are we going to be able to operate again? And uh, someone had commented, you know, why don't you ask one of your female colleagues what it was like, you know, being on maternity leave. So um, Sherry, uh, could you, could you comment on perhaps what is it like taking an extended break from, you know, not doing surgery to going back um, after a time off?
4: Yeah, I didn't take time off from maternity leave, but I did take time off when I moved from <clears throat> from Baltimore to California, because at that point, I had to get credentialed. I had a license, but it took a while to get credentialed. So it was about four to five months. Wow. I have to say when I got back, and I obviously am a a very skilled surgeon. I'd never had issues going in. I, I was very, the, the OR was my second home. And when I first got back in there after that long, I was a little, and, and on top of that, I was in a new OR, new staff, new equipment, new lasers, or everything was all new for me and had to learn everything all over. So I was a little, it, it's not that it was nervous. It's nerve wracking because you're not in your, You're not on your game. But that's a long time. I don't think any of us will be, have to go. I, I hope we don't have to go that long. You know, a month, uh, you'll get back in. And I think it's like riding a bicycle. You know, you're just going to get back on, get back on the saddle. First case, you'll just kind of get your systems in order. Maybe one or two cases, you'll get it. But, you know, everybody will just be, we'll all be fine with this. Uh, four or five months, you start feeling it. I, I, I was like, and then I realized... I will never stop again until I really have given up and don't want to operate again. That's when I will stop operating. I'll never stop practicing in some way because I love the mental stimulation of it. I didn't even like that I didn't have the mental stimulation. So you get slower, you get lazier, and you're not as quick. So my brain didn't work as fast. you 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 don't stay as sharp. That's why I don't see me really ever retiring. But I, I think that you're going to get back in, you'll be fine. You just take it slow for a, a few cases and make sure you have all your, all, everything you need in order and, and you'll be, it will be okay. As long as it's a month or two yeah. at the most.
1: If you had good skills going in, you'll knock the rust off and you'll get back up.
4: You knock it right off. Okay. Yeah.
1: All right. Um, Asan Sadri, um, you know, good friend of ours has a question that, that I want to get to real quick. Uh, he says, we know cataract demand is going to be robust for us in the summer, but how do we ensure confidence to our patients that our practices are safe as a collective? And we've been kind of going around and talking about that, but I want to share a little anecdote. You know, I was, I had, um, you know, a cardiologist friend of mine uh, came into the office today. He ended up having a, you know, a little coronal ulcer that I had to take care of. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, are people still having heart attacks? And he said, you know, surprisingly, my, my, my um, clinic is empty. People are not coming in with chest pain and and they're probably just having heart attacks at home. And he said, there's probably gonna be a real disaster dealing with the aftermath of all this uh, in a few months. You know, you kind of think about that. If someone's having a heart attack, they're not willing to go into the doctor. At what point do they say, uh, my cataract, you know, my glaring halos and, and, and whatnot um, are bothering me enough. Are we gonna see a delayed you know, I think it is going to happen in tears. Hopefully, people having chest pain decide to come back in sooner. But um, Chuck, when do people, you know, decide their cataract is, you know, the thing that they need to get taken care of? Um, and do you think that maybe wearing masks like N95 masks or having that is going to be something that makes a big difference in how we, you know, keep people safe?
6: But yeah, I think that uh, certainly going to have to wear masks, and and uh, and they are too, which we're not used to. But whether that helps or how much that helps, or the perception of how much that helps is all the same because perception is reality in that case. Uh, the other thing uh, that's that's important is that uh, you know when we're when we're coming back, uh, you really need to spend some of this time going through your records, outbound calling and building up those first few months as much as you can. Meaning that uh, over, basically uh, overbook them because you're going to lose some, some aren't going to come in for various reasons. But the other thing is, is that if anything, when you start to rely on the natural order of things to restore again, you want that to happen as far down the line as you can, meaning as far away from this point as you can get. So if you can put all those patients you've canceled and all the patients that are calling in, our phones ring off the hook. People want to come in. They want to get seen by the eye doctor. Uh, you know, they're, they're just trying to look at when that's going to be and in what manner that's going to be. So you're going to really need to build up this renaissance as high as you can ahead of time so if you can stack a month or two uh, uh, worth of patients, two months down the line, as other things reopen, things may feel a lot different to patients. And yes, the world's going to be different. The 1918 that that uh, Stephen and I went through, uh, pandemic, uh, remember, the next two decades saw the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, and the beginning of World War II. So not much happened after that.
2: Isan, he's got a, he's got a, a, another uh, sort of comment here. Uh, And Tom Frenzy has a question. I'm going to throw these two to you, Dad, just because we've talked about this. And then Bob Cioni's got one that I want uh, Steve to look at. Um, But, you know, Isan mentioned, you know, that he basically got serology testing uh, for his staff uh, and his family. And that testing is crucial, you know, and, Dad, we've talked about this. We, we've, I've spoken with CEOs of about five or six different companies that have these kits. There's like 90 different companies with test kits. We love the idea of antibody testing, but our concern is how reliable is it? Because God forbid you do it and you get that IgG that says you're, you're thinking you're immune and you're not, and then all of a sudden someone passes away. So, Dad, maybe just talk, maybe just shed some light on what we've talked about with, with antibody testing. and uh, And then Tom Frenzy's asking about, The roles that societies play, like Ascris and ACOs, and what what society what 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 role do they play as we return to normal?
6: Well, I don't think antibody testing is much good right now. I mean, everybody would like the idea that uh, that you know there's some magic number out there, but look, there's only two things: There's, there's do you have symptoms or do you don't have symptoms or not symptoms, and do you have IgG or IgM or do you not? and really the only category that it's helpful for if people have no symptoms and no antibodies well you know they're gonna have to go back to work if people have symptoms they're not going back to work so the only people are the people basically that have no symptoms and think they have antibodies but the reality is even if your igg is up uh, or you have antibodies does that mean you're safe of course not it means that you may feel like you're relatively safe, but we know that there's a lot of uh, crossover cross sensitivities and we know that there's a lot of tests. So, so I really think it's going to come down to personal protection uh, when you get back and making everybody feel like we're going to think that we're going to be dealing with some COVID patients. There's no way to stop them from coming in and out of our facilities and we just have to act accordingly. I think beyond that, uh, the, the uh, organizations, uh, we didn't have Askeris. Now before, if we didn't have Askeris, I think all of us here would think, oh, the world's gonna come to an end. Well, did it really? Askeris wasn't, wasn't held. Uh, certainly a lot more business I think can get done and a lot of people go to Askris and go to some of these meetings thinking, well, I'm gonna come away from this meeting with two pages worth of notes or one page or maybe one thing that I don't know right now, because too many of the meetings are basically rehashing what we've already all done, put into practice, put into place uh, in the previous months. There's just, there's there's usually no revelations in a lot of these uh, large meetings. So, And I know they take up a lot of time and they take up a lot of space and a lot of money from companies. So I don't know how valuable people are gonna see them going forward. We're gonna have to have smaller meetings or they're going to have to be something that basically gets a little more neat.
2: Yeah, I think if we're having thousands of streams from some of these, you know, virtual uh, webinars that we've been doing, it'd be interesting to see if companies kind of pivot to that. Uh, Stephen and Robert, I'm going to throw you all this and I want y'all to kind of uh, ping pong this back and forth. Bob Cioni's, uh question is when restarting, Are you planning on limiting your schedule in the clinic and the OR to allow for distancing? And if so, are you adding longer hours or are you doing additional days? Are you going to work weekends? What are y'all going to do?
3: I, you know, we are, um, absolutely distancing out. And again, we're going to be flexible. We're learning as we go. But if it turns out that we get busier and busier, then we'll have to do longer hours. Um, I, that would be a good problem, though, to have.
5: Yeah, the, um, I mean, we've made many changes in our practice, but one of them was to have people wait in the car rather than the waiting room. And we text them when they're ready to be seen. And what I really see happening is not that we lighten our schedule, but we finally get our act in gear and make sure patients never have to wait. And we should have done that two decades ago, and we're finally going to be forced to do it. So we'll run a full schedule, an almost full schedule, but with actually much better customer service. Just one of the ways that this crisis will make us all better. Robert,
3: uh, how do you wait in your car in August in Houston?
5: (laughs) Air conditioning, oh Yeah, Steve. I I know when you were born, there was no air conditioning. In fact, there's no automobiles, but... uh,
3: Oh, oh, okay. I get it. So you just have a whole group of people out in the parking garage <laughs> running their engine. Exactly. <laughs> oh,
5: Global warming is going to no. get worse because of this crisis. But,
3: uh, right. Yeah, okay. Better now. Got it. <laughs> Gary, I know we've but, talked uh, about
2: this, um, you know, yeah. in terms of. Changing hours and stuff like that. One thing that I've, you know, told you about is we're trying to figure out how we can get different groups of doctors and nurses not to cross paths because right. I think Dad alluded to if if you lose one soldier, you can, you know, you possibly could lose the whole platoon depending on you know what your state mandates are here in Louisiana if they have a if they if they cross paths with someone they have to quarantine for 14 days so that's kind of how we're figuring out different different times almost like different heats or different waves of soldiers coming in
1: well this is going to be controversial but I think the n95 mask is the new condom I mean I think you pretty much you know don't go don't leave home without it (laughs) I mean, you know, it's going to be the thing that, you know, you're going to have to have on at all times when you're out with people that you, um, you know, are not closely associated with, like your family. And so I, I really do think that we, N95 masks are, are going to be ubiquitous. And until we have a vaccine or, you know, <laughs> we can flatten the curve to the point where we can do contact tracing and have reliable tests that don't have 30% false positive rates or, 30% false negative rates in the antigen part, I think we have to do the best we can to protect ourselves, wash our hands, not touch our face, and, and, and wear an N95 mask. Um, but I think all these, as, as I'm kind of hearing all of every one of you talk, we're all sort of circling around kind of the same issues of how ophthalmology um, is not going to be the same, but in some ways it's going to take a step forward, maybe in ways that it should have, long ago, or maybe years ago, but maybe COVID-19 is going to be the thing that leads the digital revolution in ophthalmology or patient care. And, and, you know, we were all, we just didn't have the motivation to do it before because the system wasn't so broken that we, you know, couldn't tolerate it. Uh, Sherry, do you, what do you feel about that? How, how is, is there any silver lining here where things are maybe better or we do things differently or serve patients better because of this?
4: Yeah that's a, actually what I was alluding to in the beginning because when patients come and they're sitting there and they take a half an hour to fill out forms that is a clog it's a log, log jam and they perceive that as part of their wait time and and and, it, and we can't be predi- we can't know when we can get them back in to do the testing we can't know when it's going to be finished so having it all done in advance online and and they just come in and are ready to be taken back that instant will instantly help and the intake will be done we can we could actually do the intake in advance as well so they'll, they'll put their medicine in and think if their their health their health um, history their medications um, all kinds of things we can check that with them in advance so all of that can be done remotely. What I was saying initially was we have to learn how to take our EHR systems and have them benefit the, us instead of encumber us and we 've all felt encumbered by them the, when, when our technician takes a patient into an office and spends fifteen minutes trying to get all the information that 's valuable time that should not be have to use, that shouldn 't be used like that, so I think the systems will get better. I think our patient flow and workflow will get better. I think we will learn how to utilize our other offices. When a doctor isn't there, for instance, but we might have a technician or optometrist, we will be able to use our referring networks and, and probably now be able to utilize optometrists in a completely different way. Because if we can have telemedicine there, they could be bringing us information. We can do this remotely. I think that there's going to be a huge change. I think we will have better put through, but it's going to be painful to get it done. And the only way it's going to really get done are two ways. One is that the EHR companies step up and make it easier for us. And two is that companies like um, anybody who's doing technology we'll be able to integrate that into our EHR, we'll have ready access to it. When we're looking in a microscope, maybe we'll be able to see the data we need or our virtual uh, platforms or 3D platforms, we'll be able to have things. So we're going to need to be more efficient than ever. And it will be the, the, the necessity is the mother of invention. There, there we go.
6: We're, and when, one thing is we're ideally positioned for this in ophthalmology. It's times like these that wonder, makes me wonder what the proctologists are doing.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I actually saw on Twitter, there was a conversation between a dermatologist and a gynecologist on who had the worst telemedicine day.
4: Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's why I I'm picked my up the It was the prettiest <laughs> thing to look at.
1: <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. Eyes
1: are not so bad to look at. They're nice. Bad. Stephen, what do you think? What do you what do you think the silver lining in all this is?
3: You know, we will get better. We will survive. In my entire career, it, you know, there's always doom and gloom. There's always I, when I first started out, people got six thousand dollars inflation adjusted for a regular Medicare cataract, and it was all you know. Oh well, it'll never be like that again. Uh, you know, I feel sorry for you entering ophthalmology at the time, but that 's not the way it is. This is a great profession it 's a great role, huge need uh, with Bennett Walton in my practice. I know that he will have a as much or more successful over his thirty years that i 've had over mine so I, I I never get discouraged with this profession. Uh, it's a great opportunity to spend time with your family, get things straight, improve your office that will likely never have again. Uh, it, enjoy it, really. Uh, I drove up yesterday to Austin and uh, sat with uh, Steve Dell in his, you know, front yard and we just visited it. it and then I visited with my cousin. It, actually. Stephen was the first ophthalmologist, only ophthalmologist I've seen in six weeks. But it, um, you know, it's take little breaks, spend time with your family, spend time improving your practices like what we've heard about, communicate with your patients, communicate with your staff, and be flexible. But it'll all be fine. um, Co-management, all these things. You know, this is a great time to figure it out. Steven, what if you work with your family? Do you recommend we avoid them during COVID
2: and not spend time together?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so our two daughters were in New York City, right? And they came home uh, quickly, thank goodness. And they, okay, so this is a good story. So they're 26 and 21 They went, they took over the first floor. And after about two days, it had been two days. I just kind of walked up there and they were kind of shocked when I walked up there and they said, "Um, you know, we're kind of used to living by ourselves. And I go, yeah, well, this is kind of our space. So the message is, is that that's theirs. So we kind of don't go up there, but it's actually, it's been wonderful. We, we, I've spent more time with them than I ever have. So that's a huge plus of this. I
6: can tell you, my wife says I make a lousy house husband. I try to explain to her that I'm a world-class ophthalmic surgeon, but it doesn't seem to work too well in my own household. So I'm ready to get back to work.
3: No respect. Yeah. I'm I'm
1: chief bottle washer at my house as well. So uh, I'm I'm ready to uh, get, get back to work. Uh, Robert, any final thoughts on, on where we go from here, how this gets better?
5: Well, I, I, I don't have much to add to what Steve said, which is eloquently said. I'm, um, I think I'm very optimistic. I am very optimistic and I see a lot of people worried and depressed. I just think there's no reason for it. I think we are in a really good position as especially going forward because of our mixture of insurance and cash pay. We are going to have a rough six months or three months or one year. We will get through it and you know, the opportunities are just incredible in this profession. And uh, so I have no fears. We just got to keep a long-term outlook.
1: Yeah. Well, I just want to thank everyone for taking time. I mean, you guys have honestly made me feel better. Um, usually when we tune into things, you know, it's sort of like, like the sky's falling, doom and gloom. Um, it's so nice to hear from folks who've, who I obviously look up to and respect so much, um, giving us such a, a message of hope. Uh, Blake, any final thoughts before we wrap this up?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was I was hanging out with my wife this morning and she was scrolling through her Instagram travel photos of like Greece and Italy and she was like, "Where's the first place you want to go when this is all done?" And I told her the operating room. <laughs> so I feel, I feel like this conversation that we had today makes me feel you know, better prepared uh, to do that. So uh, thank you so much to you leaders uh, for coming on and spending time with us. And thank you for everybody streaming and watching this and also our industry support too. Next week, it looks like we're going to have uh, the presidents of some of our societies are going to come on like Askris and AAO. We're looking to try to get that together. So uh, we'll join everyone next week. But uh, thank you so much for uh, this, uh, this episode of Off the Grid, the COVID series.
0: Bryn Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications, LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on in this webcast podcast.